2: But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol
0: fully implemented. I'm going to miss
4: being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor at the One Ocean Summit in Brittany. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in
5: London. I'm Conor McCauley, RTE's Northern Correspondent in Belfast.
4: And I'm Colm
1: O'Mungine, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Belfast, Brussels and London.
4: This week, another round of negotiations on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Will the UK make a move on how to reduce customs checks on the Irish Sea as those Assembly elections get closer and political turmoil grips Northern politics? And who would
3: have guessed it? The House of Commons Public Accounts Committee says that Brexit has caused delays, disruption and expenses for UK exporters. We'll take a closer look at the PAC report and at how Boris Johnson is once again falling out with fellow Conservatives and Unionists, this time Sir John Major. And Ian Paisley Jr.
1: And we'll take a look at how Northern Ireland will remain aligned with the EU rules into the future with some surprising findings thanks to research by Lisa Clare Whitten of Queen's University Belfast. And staying with Belfast we're going to go to our Northern correspondent Conor McCauley. So Conor you had a late-ish night last night out at a meeting. What was the nature of that meeting and why was it called?
5: Well, it was a meeting in, in an orange lodge in Drumore in County Down, which actually is the very heart of uh, Geoffrey Donaldson's Lagan Valley constituency. It's essentially his hometown. Um, there were about... Uh, it's difficult to say exactly how many people were there because actually the broadcast media were denied access to the meeting uh, for some inexplicable reason we we had tried to get in to try and get a few pictures just to get a sense of how many people were there and what the you know the, the tone of the meeting really was but we weren't a, afforded that opportunity but from looking at some still images that uh, some of the photographers who were invited in got it, it looks like the you know the, the upper room that they were in was pretty busy i would say roughly perhaps 200 people uh, in the room. The room was was packed. And this was a meeting that had been organised by the uh, Orange District in that area. Uh, They had contacted all the various unionist politicians, politicians And uh, said that they wanted to find a little bit more out about the protocol, its impact on what the unionist parties, I suppose, were doing uh, to oppose it. So they had invited the likes of Jeffrey uh, Donaldson, the DUP leader, was there to speak. Uh, Jim Allister, uh, the uh, traditional unionist voice leader, was there. And there was a representative uh, from the Ulster Unionist Party as well. So I say, you know, a well attended uh, meeting uh, and they were there to hear what the Unionist Party is essentially, I suppose, what their position is in respect of the protocol as we uh, face into the Assembly election, which is uh, now scheduled for May.
1: And what did the audience hear?
5: Well, as I say, we're not too sure because we didn't get in, uh, is the honest answer. Uh, Interestingly, uh, GB News got in, uh, but (laughs) the other broadcast media weren't allowed in. So we were left. At one point, I was standing on a bench outside with the uh, microphone (laughs) on on an extended (laughs) pole up at the window, trying to catch a a few snatches of what was being said. But mostly all all we could hear were kind of um, periodic applause and the stomping of feet. So whatever was being said in the room, it's it was going light. it was going down well. Right, yeah, right. and it wasn't just the the unionist party leaders that were there. Uh, Kate Hoey, who's uh, the the Baroness, she's in the House of Lords now. The former Labour MP, she was there, uh, and Ben Habib, who's the former Brexit MEP. Uh, who uh, both of those people were parties to a legal action uh, in the Belfast courts here uh, taking the the protocol uh, to court or going you know challenging it in the courts they were both there so th- there were a range of speakers but as we say uh, we didn't get in we're not too sure but it seemed to be going down quite well
1: right okay there is i suppose a, tr- a tradition come election time where politicians have this wheeze where they put up public meetings posters on matters of concern and they are in effect a precursor to an election campaign is there very much the sense of this being part of an election campaign an attempt to gee up the grassroots and to get their minds focused in the in advance of any vote
5: oh absolutely the campaign is uh, the electoral campaign is is well underway here has been i think to be honest for for a matter of weeks. I mean, obviously, the the decision to withdraw Paul, given as uh, First Minister from the Northern Ireland Executive, and essentially to collapse the Northern Ireland Executive, was very much a political decision with that uh, election in mind. And interestingly, uh, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, when we were talking to him last night, said that he had been on a tour of every single constituency in Northern Ireland in recent months, essentially taking soundings from the Unionist electorate about how they felt uh, around the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And he was saying to us last night that despite you know some commentary here that perhaps the protocol will not land with the unionist electorate, there will be more interest in the bread and butter issues that people always talk about, he says from his soundings going around the constituencies uh, that it is a very important issue to the unionist electorate, uh, both in terms of the economic impact uh, which he would say it's having but also this uh, constitutional impact which we've talked about before the fact that unionists feel that the protocol is essentially to a degree hiving them off from the rest of the UK and somehow is being seen as a kind of a almost like a, a backdoor to United Ireland Right although if
1: the admissions policy is the same at those soundings as it was last night at that meeting <laughs> maybe it's no surprise as to why he's hearing what he's hearing
5: He is preaching to the converted I imagine I mean you know you imagine you, you get staunch unionists coming to these meetings who, to a degree, I suppose, have very much got their mind set about the protocol, uh, hence the kind of you know uh, thunderous applause and stomping of feet last night to some of the things that were being said.
1: Right. Well, if, if the resignation of Paul Given was designed to grab the attention of Brussels and London, there can really only have been disappointment because Ian Paisley was in the House of Commons during the week talking about how the Prime Minister hadn't addressed the crisis and he said this would give rise to suspicions of the Conservative and Unionist Party in Britain being an English. Nationalist Party, there seems to be a level of unhappiness. I think Geoffrey Donaldson also said that they needed to be making themselves heard.
5: Yeah, I think there's probably uh, uh, some truth in that. There's a degree of disappointment, I suspect, in in the uh, the ranks of the leadership of the DUP, because you have to think that when they announced the uh, resignation of Paul Given and went for that big moment of collapsing the Northern Ireland executive... Uh, Part of the demand or the request at that stage was that, that the people have their say immediately. So, you know, Geoffrey Donaldson was making a play for an immediate election. And what really happened in the immediate aftermath of that? Well, the decision around when that election would be would be in the gift of the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis. And what happened in the immediate aftermath of that decision to withdraw, Paul given and collapse the executive was that we heard nothing from Brandon Lewis for quite some time considerable time. And then only in more recent days has he said, uh, well, actually, you know, we're going to stick with the original plan, which is to have the Assembly election on May the 5th. So if the DUP were looking for some sort of electoral bounce, if you like, from uh, having carried through on its threat to collapse the uh, executive over the Northern Ireland Protocol, they didn't get it, I suppose, really, in that they didn't get the immediate election. So they're now into quite a long period Uh, before we have the assembly election. And as we know, as you know very well, Colin, when you have a long campaign and the campaign hasn't officially begun yet, although it is well underway, it just creates, you know, you lose that sense of momentum, I suppose, and there's always the possibility for events, dear boy, events. Uh, And I think they'll be slightly concerned about that.
1: All right. Okay, thanks a million, Connor. All right, no problem, Colin. As I mentioned there, talking to Conor McCauley, Ian Paisley Jr. was speaking in the House of Commons during the week. Well, we might as well hear what he had to say, his disappointment and sense of being neglected by the Conservative Party in Britain.
6: Uh, Thank you, um, Mr Deputy Speaker. I think there is truth to the point tonight that four days into a crisis, actually almost five days into a crisis, the Prime Minister of this nation has not spoken. I think that's wrong. I think the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom ought to have spoken on Thursday evening about this issue. Mm-hmm. And I think he should not have shut up about it until the issue is resolved. I think they are his responsibilities. And when you, when you view a crisis, a constitutional crisis, through a prism of a divided community, which is what Northern Ireland is, you create suspicions and you raise concerns unless those matters are properly addressed. And I think it is very obvious to some people that there is a fear that the Conservative and Unionist Party which governs this nation is actually a Nationalist Party,
4: <laughs>
6: an English Nationalist Party that is not concerned about a border in the Irish Sea, But it's concerned about a red wall on the island, the mainland island, and that that's what eats them up every single day. And if that is their only concern, then that government is betraying the union
4: Mm
6: -hmm. and the unionist people. And that is the reality of where we are this evening.
1: And Sean Whelan, our London correspondent, heard that clip. And he, there was also more during Prime Minister's questions. He finally got that answer he was looking for in Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. Well, not the answer he was looking for. He got an answer on Wednesday.
3: Well, he got the stock answer on Wednesday. He pretty much got the same answer as a Conservative backbencher got with the um, traditional question hmm. number one to my friend, the Prime Minister. It was quite the question, um, though, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but I mean, it, 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 Ian Paisley's version of it was quite the question, and uh, I, I was actually there um, in the chamber, perched up high in the, the press gallery, trying to see down who was uh, doing the heckles and interruptions, I have more of that later, but pay close attention to this one because it's, it's the noises off uh, that are the ones that really uh, make this particular clip, uh, but uh, yes, right. it's uh, Ian Paisley Jr. again at PMQs on Wednesday, have a listen.
6: The fact of the matter is that the protocol has zero support from Unionists. The fact of the matter is, and I hope the Prime Minister is listening to this, that in a divided society a solution that only attracts the support of one section of that community will never stand. Will the Prime Minister therefore take the opportunity to speak to the Irish Government whose Ambassador Daniel Mulhern (coughs) is running around Washington demanding Mulhall, Running around Washington, demanding, demanding further implementation of the protocol on the basis that it will bring further checks upon the people of Northern Ireland. Does the Prime Minister accept that he has now the responsibility to bring forward a solution that unites the people? of Northern Ireland and bring forward a solution that saves the union that has been undermined by it.
2: Yeah. Yes, Mr. Speaker. Well, I agree with him completely that there must be a solution that commands cross community support. And at the moment, Mr. Speaker, there is no doubt that the balance of the Good Friday Agreement is being upset by the way the protocol is being operated. And we need to fix it, Mr Speaker. And that's what we're going to do. And if uh, our friends won't agree, then, of course, we will, as I said uh, earlier on, of course, we will implement uh, Article 16.
0: The Brown.
1: All right, Sean, so what's the great reveal? Who is the prompter off stage?
3: The great uh, reveal is Colm Eastwood, the SDLP uh, MP. Uh, for the Foyle constituency, formerly held by the late great John Hume, of course, uh, interjecting there um, quite knowledgeably that yes, indeed, half the population, indeed more uh, than half the population uh, of Northern Ireland don't support or didn't support in the referendum Brexit, uh, for example, and also correcting the name of the Irish ambassador to uh, Washington, D.C. Um, The Irish ambassador's name is often invoked Uh, When uh, the DUP are trying to get the British government to do something or do a bit more uh, on the ground in Washington, Uh, the charge is always laid that the Irish are out there uh, forging ahead on these things, uh, spinning their evil webs as the the DUP would see it, uh, whereas the British government uh, aren't. So it's a, a, a little spur that's jabbed into the soft flank of the British government from time to time. Right.
1: Uh, and something that'll be in in your bailiwick, in your next post, as we referred to a couple of weeks ago, when you take up uh, the reins of of Washington correspondent. Now that was that was Boris Johnson on Wednesday. Uh, he has his own problems on on the on the home front politically. But the Commons went into recess on Thursday. Boris Johnson was only too happy to get out of the country and have some international meetings. He was in Brussels. Uh, meeting in NATO headquarters. He was uh, in Poland as well, visiting British troops and meeting the Prime Minister and the President there. But while he was there, a predecessor of his decided he would send a torpedo under the waterline towards Boris Johnson's reputation.
3: Yes, this is John Major, Sir John Major. Uh, as he is now, um, strangely enough, hasn't been elevated to the Lords, like some other former Prime Ministers have been, Uh, but he continued what some of the journalists here consider his 30-year war with Boris Johnson. (laughs) The two have been at each other's throats since the days when uh, Boris was uh, a Daily Telegraph uh, correspondent, in fact, the Daily Telegraph correspondent in Brussels, and uh, was merrily uh, inventing his way through all kinds of Uh, extraordinary stories. Um, Our colleague uh, who was back there in the day, uh, Tommy Gorman, regaled us sometimes uh, about the things that Boris Johnson used to get up to as a correspondent back then. Uh, He annoyed the hell out of John Major though uh, and it it still uh, seems to be a a subject of dispute for them. After, um, I should sort of background this, John Major made this speech at the Institute for Government here in London uh, on basically ethics and morality in government and saying that lying and law-breaking damages politics at home uh, here in the UK uh, lowers the esteem uh, of politicians and politics and the political process and democracy itself amongst the people but also does damage internationally uh, because if uh, politics is not seen to be uh, honest and reputable and living up to the reputation that Britain has built up over um, decades and centuries Uh, on the international circuit, uh, then they uh, lose face internationally and people don't take them seriously and don't pay attention to what they say. Now uh, that was all uh, very good, a a fairly stonking sort of a speech in touch with a lot of the current mood uh, in Britain, but uh, we're going to play a piece now from the question and answer session uh, that came afterwards where uh, Nick Watt from Newsnight was asking the Prime Minister uh, about uh, his 30-year war with Boris and uh, how he felt about that and, and whether that was playing into the kind of commentary uh, that Sir John uh, had come out with in that speech. And here's what he had to say.
0: If I go back to his reporting, uh, I think it's a fine distinction between lie. Let me simply say his reporting was often widely mistaken and short of fact. He was once given an invitation from a senior Foreign Office official that if he was putting any more stories into the public, uh, into the public arena, he could check with the Foreign Office, and this official would check the, uh, the, the, that they were factually accurate before he posted them. Uh, and his response to the uh, uh, to, to the person concerned was, it might be one phone call too many. So he was certainly mistaken. Uh, on the European issue, <clears throat> whether that was a lie or whether it was a mistake, I don't know. It was certainly wrong. It was certainly wrong. I I, I haven't noticed an extra 350 million being lobbed up on a weekly basis towards the uh, health service. I have noticed billions and billions and billions as the current cost of Brexit. I did hear courtesy of the BBC this morning of the problems of the pig farmers uh, and the fact that large numbers of pigs are now being uh, being slaughtered uh, without going through the food chain. There are problems like that in many other areas. The difficulties for importers and exporters are now absolutely acute. These are all subjects for another day and not today. Um, you may remember in 2016 that Tony Blair and I went together, an unlikely duo you may think, went together to Northern Ireland to warn of the dangers to Northern Ireland of, uh, of the protocol. And of the peace process, and to the peace process, we warned then, and as I recall, uh, not too gently told by the then Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and the then leader of the DUP, that neither Mr Blair nor I knew anything about Ireland, and we should pipe down. Well, it looks as though we might have known a little about it from the difficulties that exist at the present time. The Northern Ireland Protocol was arguably one of the worst pieces of negotiated negotiation that uh, we have seen in recent history. It is causing an enormous amount of trouble. Whether anyone deliberately misled about that, I can't say. Certainly they were mistaken. But it does help if you sign treaties, if you understand them before you sign them.
1: So that that's two people now who are talking about the, their trust being undermined. We have the Democratic Unionist Party's Ian Paisley Jr. talking about how unionist trust has been undermined in Boris Johnson. We have uh, John Major talking about trust being undermined by Boris Johnson. And, I mean, why ever would people not believe him?
3: Well, this is it. It's the kind of game of truth and consequences, isn't it? That's all the rage at the moment that the... The shine has really come off Boris Johnson since last October, uh, internally in the Conservative Party, externally in the wider country, and the consequences of that and the cumulative build-up of all the deceptions and dishonesties and spoofing and bluffing and outright lying that has gone on over the past several years, mostly to do with Brexit, uh, but across a number of other areas as well, do have consequences and are coming home to roost now in terms of the not just the reputation of the Prime Minister and the government that support him, but also their ability uh, to get things done. Um, in terms of our own little bailiwick here in Brexit Republic, one of the things that popped up in Twitter was uh, somebody had handily cut out and kept uh, a little extract from an interview that uh, the Prime Minister had done with Sophie Ridge of Sky News back in uh, November. Of 2019, where he's talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, and you know, what the reasons why John Major made that stinging remark about uh, it helps to uh, to understand what you're signing. Uh, here's the Prime Minister speaking about the um, Northern Ireland Protocol. And that, that after that famous time when he said, If anybody tells you to fill in a form, ring me, and I'll tell them to throw it in the bin you don't need it, there won't be any checks at all. Um, Listen to what he had to say, and also listen to the question that that Sophie Ridge posed to him about, is he telling the truth?
2: That they would face no forms, no checks, no barriers of any kind under your Brexit deal. And you also went on to say that if anyone asks them to fill out a form, they should phone you up personally, and you'll direct them to throw that form in the bin. Well, how come then that this government document that was leaked uh, this week? says that that's not true, that there will be checks and forms. Were you telling the truth? Yes, I am. And look at what we say in our manifesto. Look what we're going to deliver. The the deal that we've done with the EU. So will there be checks? No, absolutely not. The deal we've done with the EU is a brilliant deal. And it allows us to do all the things that Brexit was about. So it's about taking back control of our borders, money, laws, but unlike the previous arrangements, it allows the whole of the UK to come out of the EU, including Northern Ireland, and the only checks that there would be would be if something was coming from GB via Northern Ireland and was going on to the Republic, then there might be checks at the border into Northern Ireland. So uh, this document is talking about checks both ways. And that's wrong, so, because there won't be checks. So you're saying that this this is wrong, the government's own impact assessment is wrong, your Brexit secretary is wrong, all these people are wrong, and you're well, right. Yes, because, because there, there's no question of there being checks on goods going uh, N-I-G-B or
3: G-B-N-I. So, yeah, I mean, we've been talking over the past few weeks about the Brexit talks going on Uh, with David Frost and now with Liz Truss dealing with Mara Shevcevic and one of the ideas that has been kicked around a fair bit on the British side is this idea that there wouldn't be checks on anything going from GB into Northern Ireland unless it was intended for onward travel into the uh, European single market uh, in other words onto the Republic of Ireland in the first instance Uh, and yet there we had Boris Johnson within a few weeks of having signed off this deal this oven-ready deal uh, about to bring it to the country and in the midst of a general election campaign, clearly not understanding what he had signed up to uh, and yet trying to present it to the public uh, as an easy thing, an easy win. Mm, Although,
1: I mean, we do, in his defence, have what Dominic... Well, I mean, it's kind of backhanded defence, what Dominic Cummings described afterwards when David Frost, Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson were allegedly in a room together. that The Prime Minister may not have understood what he was talking about when he was speaking to Sophie Ridge at that point, given that the implications of leaving the customs union only seems to have dawned on him after David Frost gave him what the detail of that deal was. Now, I I, I don't have the timeline on that to hand, but he, he, he may have misunderstood rather than intended to mislead. Neither is terribly uh, complimentary to somebody in high office. Neither
3: is terribly complimentary. And indeed, both of them are are criticised in the John Major comment there about, uh, you know, you need to understand what it is you're signing before you actually sign it. And if Lord Frost was his um, negotiator and and was supposed to be the the policy wonk who understood all of these things, then surely he should have known what he was signing off uh, as well. Um, But maybe they didn't. Uh, Or maybe it's just Dominic Cummings uh, playing um, mischief uh, with the Prime Minister and uh, having a go at him, as he's been known to do over the past year or so. Uh, and indeed getting um, more and more deep into his attacks on the Prime Minister, on pretty much everything that he can think of. So, you know, is Cummings himself a reliable witness to these events? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see.
1: We don't know. Yeah, absolutely. What John Major had to say isn't terribly complimentary of anyone concerned because his point is that the protocol is bad for Northern Ireland, but there are two guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement and several interested parties. I suppose... What, what comes out of John Major's question isn't just a criticism of Boris Johnson. It begs the question, how did anyone sign up for it? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, he, but again, let's start with his uh, start point on this. He was opposed to Brexit in the first place, and he also had his form going back to his days as Prime Minister uh, and as Foreign Minister uh, with the uh, anti-EU Uh, faction within the Tory party the people that he famously christened in a uh, unguarded um, off camera but caught on microphone uh, comment as the bastards Um, yes so you know slightly less offensively
1: referred to by David Cameron as the swivel-eyed loons
3: (laughs) indeed should we name names at this point Uh, I don't know but interesting that a point he was making in that speech was that uh, when he was negotiating the Maastricht Treaty I mean people were asking him, you know, didn't you just give rise to the Eurosceptic movement by uh, refusing to have a referendum on the Maastricht Treaty as some of the MPs were demanding. And he was saying, look, I got my parliamentary mandate for that negotiation from the parliament that was elected in 1987. Uh, By the time we came back to the parliament for ratification, it was a new parliament and uh, a different mandate, but I couldn't uh, go to the European partners and say, sorry, all bets are off on uh, something that we'd done in good faith. Uh, and above-board honour with the the other uh, European countries, but also making the point that the complexion of the two parliaments had changed pretty radically because he said the parliament that came in uh, in that uh, 91-92 period uh, had a lot of people in it who had no direct experience of the Second World War whereas a lot of MPs had retired from the uh, previous parliament the one uh, where they'd won their, their victories under Margaret Thatcher and they did have a memory uh, either of directly participating in the war or living through the privations of of the war um, time immediate post-war period and they were very committed personally from their own experiences to making the european union work whereas after that uh, election uh, that john major won there was a radically new breed had come in and they were not at all Uh, interested in the EU, they had no direct connection. Uh, But also, I recall from the time, uh, working as a very young junior reporter over here, they were working to deselect MPs who were uh, pro-EU. I recall one of my last jobs uh, for a magazine back in late 1989, uh, being out at some direct marketing opening of an envelope uh, by the local MP who had to cut short our interview by saying, sorry, I have to leave. There's a group of people who are trying to take over my party like the Trotskyites did with the Labour Party. They are completely opposed to the uh, EEC and they want to get rid of people like me who think we ought to uh, be a member of it and stay a member of it. uh, And they're trying to deselect us and I have to get out and fight to keep my job. So that was going on. Even before John Major became Prime Minister, when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister, there was a a takeover of the uh, Conservative Party. And they went about it by capturing first the branches and then turfing out MPs that they didn't like. And gradually, over time, the party drifted into becoming... Well, it didn't drift. It was actually made uh, by a process into a more Eurosceptic party, which met its final stage just before that 2019 election when Boris Johnson basically purged the party of anybody who wasn't going to be fully on board in supporting Brexit and his version of Brexit.
1: Right, well that's quite the potted history and something John Major has obviously kept to the forefront of his mind. Anything further on the Northern Ireland protocol, Sean, just to return to that before we step off into the Public Accounts Committee report that was out during the week?
3: Well, it was It was just one little nugget that, that cropped up um Happy memories of the uh, trip to the Wirral with uh, Boris Johnson and the then T-shirt Leo Varadkar doing that bromance that led to the turnaround on the uh, standoff that had been existing over the backstop which then became the Northern Ireland Protocol held in this this uh, hotel in the Wirral that was also famous for hosting Colin Rooney's Hen Night. But it, during the week it uh, went on fire and a large part of it burnt down. Some uh, wedding party was there at the time. They had to be evacuated from the building. Uh, But sadly, the curse of the Northern Ireland Protocol seems to have struck even the place where it was uh, conceived.
1: Sean, there was a cabinet reshuffle in the UK during the week. Jacob Rees-Mogg is now the Minister for Brexit Opportunities. But if he is, a report by the Public Accounts Committee made for sobering reading.
3: Yeah, yes, it does, and in relation to Mr Rees-Mogg himself, somebody again on, on social media, they were dredging up a previous clips from him saying it'll take 50 years for the real benefits of Brexit uh, to materialise, which is generally the uh, well beyond the uh, timeframe of uh, service in the uh, Cabinet, uh, in, especially in this country. Uh, but yeah, the, the Public Accounts Committee are dealing with the here and now and having a look at how the British border has been coping over the past year uh, with the introduction of um, some checks, uh, not so much uh, here in the UK. They only started uh, on the 1st of January this year because, as they note, uh, even though uh, the British had originally intended to introduce checks at the same time as the EU, they've actually put them off three times and are only starting to phase them in now. Uh, But uh, without invoking the name of Sherlock Holmes in that crude phrase when something is pretty obvious. Their main conclusion from the report was um, there has been a clear increase in costs, paperwork and border delays for UK businesses since Brexit uh, and this has not been helped by repeated delays to the new import regime. So that's their headline uh, figure. Um, Yet yeah, comes as no surprise to anybody who uh, has been listening to this podcast since time immemorial uh, that that would happen. They've put in a few kind of numbers into this um, saying, I mean, there was an original estimate by the uh, British customs service in 2019 that the the introduction of this new customs regime uh, would cost about 15 billion pounds per year to UK and EU businesses. Um, Revenue here in the UK have not updated that uh, estimate but they think it might be a little bit uh, less than that but that's still uh, a stonking great amount of money, um, 15 billion quid that people didn't have to spend before uh, on complying with customs that they now uh, have to do. Obviously the main effect of uh, all of this has been on the SME sector, as again we've talked about here a lot. Um, most of Britain's imports tend to be done by about 10,000 higher value businesses, uh, but they are trying to uh, push down to the SME sector now. There was a £20 million SME fund, but only £6.5 million of that was actually paid out So there's a lot to be done there. They reckon EU companies aren't ready at all for the introduction of British border controls that are going to be coming in. uh, But they're also critical about the delays um, and non-communication of computer systems. Uh, For example, uh, importing uh, goods for animals, uh, food products for SPS checks. The system can't communicate with the goods vehicle movement system and tell the hauliers where they're supposed to go to get the checks done, uh, the revenue. We're saying we'd love to have. There aren't any in laughs Dover. in this
1: document, are there, Sean?
3: Um, not laughs. I mean, there's uh, some interesting facts. I mean, moving on to the new computer declaration service, there's about five thousand users have to migrate their systems onto this. So far, only forty-two out of five thousand have done that. Uh, the Dover White Cliffs site, this fairly controversial place down in Dover, uh, which they've started digging up uh, at the back of some people's houses, Um, that's not going to be ready until 2023, That's sometime next year. Ideally, the revenue said, yeah, it would be great to be able to do this inside the port, but they can't. Um, So in the meantime, people have to drive 60 miles, that's a good sort of 100 kilometres, to Ebb's fleet. And uh, of course, being taxmen as well, they realise that the further you have to drive away from the port area to be checked, the more opportunities there is to turn off right. down a side road and empty your load uh, customs free uh, and do what you like. So there's all kinds of fraud risks there, which again, we've all known this stuff, but sometimes you have to just prove what Basil Fawlty called the bleeding obvious. And that's what this report is uh, is doing. Uh, so, yeah, okay. they're saying 90,000 traders, they need to uh, get in touch with them and try and improve them their preparedness. But really, things are not good the level of uh, Passengers moving through the ports and airports have been very low because of COVID, and they're not sure whether the system is going to be able to cope when people start returning in big numbers to travel.
1: Right, okay, okay, that's uh, sobering stuff indeed. Now, you mentioned obviously disruption at the ports there. So it's a good thing, Tony Connolly, that there was a direct route opened from Brittany to Ireland today, is it not? In order to avoid that, you got a first hand view of the launch of this new route as you beam into us from France, having earlier tried to ring in while, while we were speaking there.
4: Yeah, good good evening and good afternoon, or whenever you're listening to this, from uh, the Breton capital of Brest uh, in France. And yes, indeed, uh, Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, was due to uh, launch another ferry, another Brexit-busting ferry from France direct to Ireland, uh, Brittany's Ferry, Line um, and that was due. Uh, he was hoping at least that Emmanuel Macron, the French president, would join him in that. Now, uh, as it turns out, um, the French uh, authorities have been very media shy and have kept the media away, well, well away from that particular uh, event. Um, on the grounds, apparently, that it's a military zone uh, or some such. Uh, but anyway, I have to confess to you and listeners that nice. uh, I didn't get first-hand evidence of this said boat being launched or any bottles of Pomerol being smashed on the, the hull. Um, but uh, again, uh, evidence at least that the... Um, the direct sailing sector between Ireland and the single market uh, is alive and kicking.
1: Right, well I mean never to let a visit go to waste Tony, you managed to throw a question to the Taoiseach about Brexit while you were there.
4: That's right well the, t- the Taoiseach is at um, he's been attending this one ocean summit that President Macron has thrown in uh, Brittany under the French presidency so he's had a lot of leaders from coastal states around the world, uh, the Pacific, Indian Ocean, uh, a lot of African countries are here, partly because there's an EU Africa summit in Brussels next week, so why not extend the visit and and pop over to Brittany for a while? Um, But we did speak to the Taoiseach uh, during a break in proceedings here, and I asked him if he felt that if there was no agreement in these negotiations between Liz Truss and Mara Shevcevic by the end of February, should the process be paused because of the, I suppose, the highly charged nature of the Northern Ireland Assembly election campaign and all that has happened in the past couple of weeks that we've been talking about. And here's what he had to say. I think the the process should continue um, and certainly that there is uh, hope um, and there was a view that certainly before the end of February that progress could be made. I would like to see progress made between the European Union and the United Kingdom in these talks Um, and um, it's important that the dialogue is maintained, that progress is made. Uh, I believe progress can be made, Um, where there's there's a will there's a way and it's important that once that progress is made, uh, that it is uh, made clear to all of the parties uh, that that agreement on on key issues uh, has, has been uh, possible but uh, clearly it's some time yet to go uh, before that can happen
1: keep talking uh, and but he doesn't sound like he's confident of a breakthrough anytime soon and given the statement that was put out by Mara Shevchevich on foot of that meeting with Liz Trust today intensive talks seem to be all we can look forward to for some time to come
4: yeah I mean there's been a little bit of stuff on the ether about a a, a move by the UK on customs. Um, Just to remind people, these negotiations have been really ongoing since last summer and the EU has presented a set of proposals that they say will dramatically reduce the Intensity and level, and number of checks and controls on goods crossing the Irish Sea into Northern Ireland. That's both for goods in general and uh, agri-food products, uh, SPS checks, as Sean was talking about there, and customs formalities. Um, now, the, the talks haven't really been getting very far. Obviously, David Frost, the previous negotiator, resigned. Liz Truss has taken over. She's kind of reading her way into the brief one gets the impression and also she's been distracted by long-haul flights here, there and everywhere. Um, A particularly difficult meeting in Moscow this week as well with uh, her Russian counterpart. But nevertheless, um, there has been a a lot of technical work by both teams on the customs area the UK essentially wants no customs formalities at all on goods that are clearly staying in Northern Ireland, uh, being consumed by end users or retail outlets. Um, only those goods that are clearly heading into the Irish Republic should be should be checked. The EU is saying, well, not really. We, we you know, we, we need some kind of risk assessment, and we can't simply outsource the monitoring and traceability of thousands and thousands of tons of food products coming into northern ireland we can't just outsource that to traders which is the uk's preferred system and this is, this is a very broad brush depiction of it so they're looking at ways that can can shift the eu over towards the uk's command paper on this the uk position and that the uk would shift over more uh, close to the eu's position which is you know, we have to have some checks and controls. We need a lot more access to databases and real-time data that will reassure member states that nothing dodgy is getting in uh, and that stuff can be stopped if there's, a, if there's a food scare, a food safety scare, for example. Um, talk as well about what a customs code means. Could a customs code take in other bits of information that, again, could... Make the checks and controls as light touch as possible, but contain sufficient information so that the EU can be reassured. Now, there was some rumour rumours going around in the past forty eight hours that Liz Trust was going to make a big play on that today, um, in the hope that you could get some kind of preliminary agreement at the Joint Committee meeting on the twenty first of February, and that and and to show that there is some progress um, before the Northern Ireland Assembly elections start to kick off in earnest. Um, a little bit early for us, unfortunately, with the podcast to, to say definitively whether that play was made in the uh, talks today. But as you say, a very, very short statement by both sides when those talks concluded.
1: Yeah, no, no major no major movement there that uh, that was being briefed anyway in advance, Sean.
4: No, uh, there wasn't. And in
3: fact, the, the uh, notice that went out to the press about this uh, event um, last night had more information in it, literally more information about the architect of Carlton Terrace, number one Carlton Terrace, the official home, London home of the uh, British Foreign Secretary, than it did about uh, what they were going to be talking about in there today. Uh, So that was uh, a clear signal to me anyway, that um, not much was going to be expected from this. Uh, And, uh, you know, Tony mentioned the meeting that Liz Truss had with Sergei Lavrov yesterday, the one where he talked about uh, their meeting being like a deaf person talking to a mute person. Um, but at least she got a press conference with the guy out of it there's no press conference no um, and even the joint statement that was issued today the shortest one uh, I've seen uh, from any of these meetings whether it would be with uh, Trust or with Lord Frost uh, prior to that uh, really really short stuff we met and we'll meet again and officials will carry on really that's it folks so yeah even though she got, got a lot of criticism about the meeting with sergey lavrov um she certainly seems to have got a bit more out of it than uh, perhaps she got out of the today's meeting with uh mara Shevcevic. all
1: right tony um th- we were speaking to conor mccauley earlier on and th- looking at the tensions around the protocol in the unionist community and we heard some of that at the house of commons and i was speaking to sean earlier before you were able to call in. You've been looking at some of the outworkings of the protocol as well. You've got kind of an expert view on this and somebody who's been conducting some research on it. Tell us the background to that before you introduce our guest interviewee this week.
4: Yeah, of course, one of the um, real unionist concerns about the protocol is that EU law is being applied in Northern Ireland. Uh, Single market rules have to be followed. Those rules are updated um, and amended over time. Um, it's, it's effectively dynamic alignment. Uh, remember, remember that phrase. That's going to apply in Northern Ireland um, forever and a day, unless, of course, the Stormont votes the key part of the protocol down. Um, and, you know, th- this has been a, a real concern. And also it's, it's been raised by David Frost, uh, Liz Truss's predecessor, about, you know, what happens if the UK... Diverges from the EU's orbit, uh, regulatory orbit. The more they do that divergence, then the thicker the sea border becomes. Effectively, the more friction you'll get um, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and this is this is going to be a problem going forward. And again, the point's made that there there are no Northern Ireland politicians who are either shaping or making those regulations as as are applied. Um, Lisa Claire Whitten is a research fellow at the Queen's University Brexit Unit, which has been doing a lot of work. We've we've had David Finnamore and Katie Hayward on the podcast before. She, she's actually been looking at what um, the the body of EU law, which which applies in Northern Ireland. You know, the, this is broken down into individual little bits of regulation, which. Which govern really boring technical things like you know the effect of plastics on the environment um, a- animal feed, even stuff about governing hand sanitizer when when covid happened and essentially all of these little segments of eu law it's not spelled out in the protocol in a you know front and center The protocol is littered with signposts that point you to the direction of annexes, and it's only in the annexes that a lot of these laws are found. And Lisa Clare Witten has been doing a lot of detailed research on how many of these laws are there, what has happened in the year since the protocol has taken effect, and she made the surprising conclusion that the number of EU acts in the annexes has actually reduced because a lot of these regulations naturally get repealed or they expire or they get bundled into another piece of legislation. Um, or it takes ages for stuff to come through because the EU legislative process is naturally quite slow and, and laborious. But um, we can hear now from Lisa Clare about her work and her findings. Okay, Lisa Clare, can you just uh, start by telling us your own involvement in studying the impacts of the protocol on Northern Ireland?
7: Sure, thank you. Um, so I am currently research fellow at Queen's University in Belfast, and working on a project that looks at post-Brexit governance in Northern Ireland. I've come at that position having finished a PhD research on the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland's constitution, um, and that uh, research interest arose while I was working out in the office of the Northern Ireland Executive in Brussels in twenty sixteen during the referendum. So. All of that is to say that I've been thinking about this stuff for quite some time um, and all too familiar with it. It's
4: keeping you you awake at night. (laughs) Yeah,
7: wouldn't go that far, but...
4: (laughs) Okay, so the paper that you published most recently for for that Queen's University unit there looks at the whole question of dynamic alignment in Northern Ireland. In other words, with the protocol taking effect, Northern Ireland has to keep up with EU rules and uh, pieces of legislation um, but it's quite quite some quite unexpected findings so can you just talk about how you approach that issue?
7: Sure so yes I just say the um, protocol provides that a body of EU law continues to apply in Northern Ireland and um, despite it having left along with uh, the rest of the UK and um, most of the law that applies relates to free movement of goods um, and there is quite a lot of it it's the, uh, yeah, there's quite a lot that applies. It's all listed in the annexes of the protocol. Um, as you said, under Article 13 of the protocol, um, there is a requirement for Northern Ireland to keep up with any changes in the applicable EU law. Um, so it has to apply those as they are amended or replaced. Um, that principle is, is controversial but, um, and has been a uh, subject of a lot of discussion, but there's been less said about um, the policy impacts of that dynamic alignment. Um, so what the paper does is kind of look at that to see how has that body of EU law changed since the protocol was agreed? Essentially, how, um, how dynamic is dynamic alignment? And as you say, some of the findings are a bit um, unexpected. The one of the headlines is that the amount of law that applies under the protocol has reduced, um, since it was signed. So in October two thousand and nineteen, when the text was agreed, there were three hundred and thirty eight, um, acts of EU law that were listed in the protocols to apply in Northern Ireland. As of the first of January two thousand and twenty two, there's three hundred and twelve, um, and the reason for that reduction is. There are three different types of change that have taken place. Um, the first is comes through it's unique to the protocol and comes through the joint committee. Um, the UK and EU can agree to add or delete acts of EU law. Um, so in December 2020, um, there was an agreement to uh, delete some and add some. Second type of change uh, relates to the repeal and replacement. Um of EU law, so that's really the dynamic alignment aspect, and um, the requirement for them to uh, EU acts to apply as amended or replaced, and um, and what we've seen there is a whole lot of um consolidation of existing acts, so uh, forty eight acts have been repealed, um from the three hundred and thirty eight that were originally agreed, um, and and as of the 1st of January 2022, those 48 that had been repealed um, had been replaced by 18 new acts, so not all of them were directly replaced. Um, and some of that is that uh, EU, there has been consolidation within the applicable law. Um, so provisions that previously existed across a number of acts um, have been replaced by one or two um, more comprehensive um. Acts.
4: Right, I think I think it's probably in the agri-food um, sphere. We we can get into that in more detail, but you mentioned at the outset that this is controversial, and that's because these laws are being updated or amended in a process over which Northern Ireland politicians or Westminster politicians have no formal formal role. That that's the problem area.
7: Indeed, yeah, they, there's no direct input um, for UK or uh, Northern Ireland representatives, um, which is controversial. Also related because of the requirement for EU law to continue to apply. Uh, as a consequence, the Court of Justice, the European Union continues to have jurisdiction, so there is that, which is also controversial, um, particularly in the current UKE talks that's on the table um as is Northern Ireland representation um in the application of these laws. So
4: um yeah. Well I mean I suppose it's it's worth pointing out as well that these are pieces of EU rules that are being updated or amended, but they deal with very technical things um because it's you know it's the it's the Northern Ireland remains in the single market for goods. So You've included some examples in your paper there of the kinds of technical updates that to many people looking on would say, well, this doesn't look like a huge invasion of sovereignty or a democratic outrage. This is just the normal tweaking of technical rules um, for stuff that gets sold in the single market
7: yeah when you start to look at the detail um a lot of the changes that come through are to implementing law so it's not the um overarching provisions but it's how the provisions are to be applied and as you said I think say, that's
4: the the pa- you you mentioned that there's a, there's a thing called the parent law mm-hmm. which is the overall law uh that applies in member states and then there are i suppose follow-up rules that are more detailed about how to apply that. Is that, is that a fair way to describe it?
7: Exactly, yeah. Um, there's, it's a bit of an equivalent, if you anyone's familiar with UK or our setting of primary and secondary law. So you get one big act um, passed, and then underneath that you get the detail added by subsequent acts. Um, and as you say, that the changes that happen at that level are generally very technical um, and niche, uh, you would have to acknowledge. So there's a couple of examples um, in the paper, uh, two that relate directly to Northern Ireland. Um, one around the ability for a certain type of hand sanitizer to be available for use in Northern Ireland. Um, a number of EU implementing acts and changes have been made, updates to um, tweak annexes of parent acts um, so that uh, hand sanitizers that use a particular um, chemical can, can be used here, particularly in the context of COVID. Um, another uh, change relating directly to Northern Ireland was to amend existing parent acts to add in a specific code to refer to Northern Ireland um, goods. Uh, so you're talking really um, techie kind of tweaks. The other thing to say is that a lot of the changes that come through that apply, um, that technically apply under the protocol because of dynamic regulatory alignment, aren't actually relevant for Northern Ireland in any kind of um, policy significant way. So you can have changes coming through to specific um, language versions of EU law um, or another example that's used is um, derogations being introduced for the application of tax law in different regions of the EU, which, while there is perhaps the possibility that there could be some um, indirect implication down the line, uh, it's very unlikely that there's any requirement for Northern Ireland policy or Northern Ireland um, policymakers being affected by that um, or stakeholders.
4: Right. And and I suppose it's also useful to point out that whatever updating... Is happening in Northern Ireland or as law applies to Northern Ireland also applies in the south across the border and everywhere else in in the European Union in the European single market
7: exactly yeah
4: yeah the the point of this dynamic alignment yeah the the clue is in the word you know as we go forward over time Northern Ireland will constantly be updating the rules that apply there or at least the rules that apply there will be updated by eu member states and and the european commission and the european parliament but it it is i suppose what your paper reveals is that it, it can be a a slow process and you know new stuff can be added but stuff can be taken away as well i mean do you see a situation where there's kind of a, an overall stability in the the degree to which eu law applies in northern ireland
7: i think based on this paper and the, the first year of implementation, and um, the body of EU law that applies under the protocol is relatively stable. Um, change happens slowly um, and happens on kind of technical um, levels most often. That said, what is kind of the, the coming challenge relates to divergence between the UK and the EU. So at present, there isn't that much substantive difference in the body of EU law that applies in the protocol um, to Northern Ireland and the retained version of that law in the UK. Um, Also worth highlighting that the majority of changes we've seen so far were actually agreed while the UK was still a member state. So that's indicative of slow processes of the development of EU law.
4: Yeah, I I think a good example there would be, again, this gets back to agri-food the Official Controls Regulation, which is a huge piece of legislation which kind of bundles in together a whole range of existing rules on the sale of agri-food products across borders. And it is an interesting point that you know the, the UK was still a member when that was agreed and the UK, I think, obviously, would have agreed to it at the time. but But those changes are now taking effect at a time when the EU, when the UK has left the EU. So that, once again, does give rise to some kind of gap opening up between the way stuff is done in Northern Ireland and the way it's done in the rest of the UK.
7: Yeah, um, exactly. And uh, particularly as the UK develops um, trade policy, uh, that challenge around um, goods coming into the UK and, following across into Northern Ireland because the EU systems and regimes, particularly around SPS um, and Food Controls, the Official Controls Act um, and the food law, that does introduce tensions, um, potential tensions uh, within the UK um, market going forward.
4: So, I mean, in simple terms, the more the UK diverges from... The legacy of EU rules in a whole sphere of technical areas, the more friction you're going to have then on on, on the Irish Sea. Exactly. Yeah. The, the I mean, just getting into the politics of of this, the UK, as you know, has sought changes um, in the protocol, not least the European Court of Justice. And there was a remark made by Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, sometime last autumn, where he said, if the UK does diverge even more, then Northern Ireland gets somehow caught up in the sort of implications of that, and perhaps might get more and more subject to queries from the the Court of Justice or stuff getting referred to the Court of Justice. I mean do do you think that's a that's a potential scenario?
7: I mean I would caveat this with it's hard to say, um, because we are talking uh hypotheticals, but I do think it's important to underline that EU law, this body of EU law that applies in Northern Ireland applies in a very different circumstance to the way that it's applying across EU member states. Um And so the potential for queries to arise is possible. Um, And so perhaps the the role of the Court of Justice could be kind of lent greater significance. However, the withdrawal agreement and the protocol itself has a structured governance um, architecture set up. Uh, that's unique um, in the context of EU external relations um, and is designed to deal with exactly these sorts of issues. So the likelihood of um, the Court of Justice being required to interpret EU law is perhaps um, less, um, it's made that that likelihood is diminished by the fact that the governing architecture of the withdrawal agreement and the protocol um, is Designed and set up to allow for the sort of discussions that might arise because of the unique way that law applies in Northern Ireland um, to be talked about, worked out through those bodies. If you see what I'm saying. Right.
4: Okay, and you mentioned as well this this whole question of democratic accountability and one of the areas that they are looking at in the current negotiations is what they call governance. Hmm. And what enhanced role Northern Ireland stakeholders or politicians might have in, you know, monitoring that application of EU law. Um, I mean, we, we have obviously the, the architecture that you mentioned there consists of the, the specialised subcommittee. We've got the joint committee, the big one, and we've got the joint consultative working group. Can, can you just remind listeners what the joint consultative working group will, will do in, in this context?
7: Yeah, so the Joint Consultative Working Group is where um, the UK and the EU are, where the discussions of the technical nature, these sorts of discussions around the application of laws, what changes are happening um, both in the EU context and in the UK, that's where those sorts of discussions are uh, taking place. Um, and the Joint Consultative Working Group can feed into the specialised committee um, that sits underneath the Joint Committee so there's that kind of hierarchical structure um, and it's the Joint Committee that has powers to make decisions um, that could amend the, the text of the protocol so the role of the Joint Consultative Working Group on this issue um, is very significant going forward and its operation and the data sharing that's provided for there between um, the two parties is significant what is important to say and we're perhaps going on to it is that At the minute, Northern Ireland doesn't have any um, formal or direct role um, on any of those bodies. There has been uh, Northern Ireland representatives attending in an observatory capacity. But one of the issues on the the table, as you said, um, is introducing a more formalised role for Northern Ireland representatives to be there and stakeholders to input um, on a... um, more formal and regular regularized uh, basis to the joint consultative working group and the, that governing architecture, which could be yeah. significant. Yeah,
4: yeah. Down. I I mean, I, sp- I suppose you could see uh, how the change of how you know a, a, the lid of a to- toothpaste has to go on uh, in terms of complying with some new regulation is is not going to be a controversial issue that that gets dragged up to the joint committee of the joint consultative working group but something like the the upcoming carbon border adjustment mechanism whereby the eu wants to i suppose penalize companies from outside the eu that produce goods using a heavy amount of carbon and and to tax those goods when they when they enter the single market that that could have serious implications for the protocol because that would apply obviously for goods that you know, in theory, are entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain if those goods are produced using, you know, a heavy carbon process. Mm.
7: Yeah, and I think that's what's interesting between the different types of change that are possible to the body of law that applies that that level of significant change. So adding um, the proposed EU directive regulation when it comes forward on carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, to the protocol would require com- a joint committee decision and um, so that addition or deletion, um, the f- kind of highest level of change, that would require debate discussion, input. Um, it's not the toothpaste top level change. Uh, so that's where the architecture for government or for governance of the implementation protocol is significant in managing the level of dynamism in dynamic regulatory alignment for Northern Ireland. Um, yeah. But as you okay. say, So,
4: it's so it's, uh, there's a lot of things to look out for um, over the coming years. But as you say, these changes can be slow and, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away <laughs> when it comes to new regulations. <laughs> yep. um, and finally, Lisa Clare, there, there, there is plan, there are plans for a website. Is that right? So that people can... Yes. watch how these changes are uh taking effect you know in what in what areas and and they can track those but that website as far as we know isn't up and running yet
7: it isn't up and running yet um reports suggest that it's coming soon but that will be significant for um particularly stakeholders or those working in specific industries uh to access um what the changes are at the minute uh Tracking this stuff requires a lot of um, timely cross-referencing and it gets uh, quite um, complex quite quickly. Uh, So having a website dedicated to monitoring protocol applicable law um, is going to be, uh, well, from my perspective, a positive thing. (laughs)
4: <laughs> nothing else for, for all of us okay mm. well listen thanks very much for taking the time lisa claire uh, for explaining all those technical issues in such a clear way Um, great to have you on uh, brexit republic
7: thank you very much for being uh for inviting me great to be here
1: that was Lisa-Claire Whitten from Queen's University's Belfast's Brexit unit. Um, Sean, to you, what's coming up on the coming week for you? We'll be, I suppose we'll be treated to uh, another round of Shevchevich Trust meetings, but any, anything else apart from that?
3: the parliament isn't around so um, who knows um, uh, certainly not me uh, i'll be perfectly honest with you folks my head is in trying to get myself packed up and shipped off to the far side of the atlantic okay. so uh, i'm really not focused i'm that's afraid fine, on, on, on what's coming up no, next not, week not by uh, ferry i assume not by ferry uh, although uh, the, the ghastly <laughs> realm of Uh, customs regulations uh, has uh, intruded back into my life um, because you know we've got to do all kinds of declarations for the uh, American side Um, but uh, apropos of what we were talking about there, David Frost after that PAC report Public Accounts Committee report that we discussed earlier After the stuff Tony's been saying, uh, Frost had um, tweeted out about how, yes, we have to put up with EU controls when we're sending stuff over there, but we don't have to replicate their controls ourselves at the border. A Brexit opportunity, he says, should be to have a light-touch border with the whole of the world. But again, uh, as Tony was reflecting on there, if the British... Were to have very light touch controls on imports coming into that country, the corollary of that would be having to increase the amount of controls that would be done at the Northern Ireland GB side uh, if the current protocol is to hold at all. Because if Britain decides to open it itself to the rubbish of the world coming into the market, the EU is going to have to clamp down on making sure that stuff that it wants to keep out of the EU single market is kept out of the EU single market which implies much more intrusive controls, not just at at the Northern Ireland side but also Dover, uh, Antwerp, Rotterdam and the other ports that uh, deal with mainland Europe. Okay, Tony, what's on
1: your plate for the coming week? You don't have your head in Washington, any other exotic locations or back to the trenches in Brussels?
4: Back to the trenches in Brussels, uh, I'm, I'm travelling back uh, early tomorrow morning from Brittany via Paris to Brussels and I'm going to have to resist the temptation to stay in Paris to watch the rugby, but probably more likely go back home to my family. Um, next week, yeah, it's going to be a very heavy week of Ukraine, there's a NATO Defence Minister's meeting on Wednesday and Thursday in Brussels, there's also the EU-Africa summit as I mentioned, uh, Thursday and Friday. But I think there'll be a lot of anticipation of the joint committee meeting on the twenty-first of February. That we we'll see then if if there is going to be any progress or breakthrough that could give London and Brussels a an excuse to say, look, we know this election is coming up in Northern Ireland, but look, we are making progress and we're all trying. We are trying to make this thing work. But I think the sense in Brussels is that you know. Too too much is at stake for Liz Truss in terms of keeping unionists happy, keeping the ERG happy, keeping her own leadership ambitions intact. If Boris Johnson is defenestrated eventually, um, so you know that there is a huge amount of noise around um, the, the the joint uh, committee meeting and what what might be achievable. Um, but it looks like, as Micheál Martin said, they should keep talking. They've got to keep the dialogue going. Um, just for just as a an aside, um, there there's a very interesting legal commentary has just been published by Oxford University University Press. It's it's a complete guide to the withdrawal agreement, including the Northern Ireland Protocol. But the key thing about this is. It's been written by EU and UK legal experts who actually took part in the negotiations. Now, there's a disclaimer at the top of it saying that uh, this commentary um, is not prejudicial to the positions of the EU and the UK on the protocol, but it's a fascinating, in-depth, line-by-line interpretation of the protocol, including Article 16 and all of the other highly sensitive articles in the protocol. Um, which is you know, analysed by, in this case, Thomas Lieflander, who was a key person on the EU side during the negotiations. Now, important to say that this was written and completed before December of 2020, so it's not like a retroactive attempt to justify X, Y or Z in all the controversies of last year. It's a, it's a very technical analysis of the legal text um, by the people who know it very well. Right, okay. uh, and for the masochists who are into this kind of thing, I have a, a long read on the <laughs> RT website right. tomorrow morning, okay. which I'm advertising shamelessly uh, for 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 uh, for people who want to just get into the to the you know w- what the nuts and bolts of the protocol are by the people who who essentially wrote it.
1: Okay, well, I I'm I, I'll have to contain myself. I, in fact, I, I'm I'm overcome. I'll have to sign off now and prepare myself for the in depth dive into yeah. that dive. You I mean, for, forget the behind. forget
4: the rugby, forget the rugby. There's like the article <laughs> right. thirteen. Paragraph B2.
1: OK, well, that's it from me, Colm O'Longaun, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin.
5: From me, Conor McCauley, RTE's Northern Correspondent in Belfast. From me, Sean Whelan,
4: RTE's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brest in Brittany. Thanks for listening.